The battle of Britain is about to begin. Welcome to the Lead Pursuit Podcast. Thanks for joining us. This is Brett. And I am joined today by Steve. Hey, what's up, Brett? How's it going? Hey, good, man. Uh, of course, we don't have our squadron leader, Doug, with us today to uh, you know, be the voice everybody's used to hearing. But you know, that's probably going to happen. We're going to have some occasions where we have a chance to do an episode without Doug in order to give him a chance to work on other side hustles. And tonight is one of those nights. And we've actually... Got something a little bit different laid on. We're going to do a spotlight episode. That was something that came to mind some time ago with the idea of, you know, really just focusing on one aircraft or series of variants of a particular aircraft and, you know, maybe give a little bit of the background of the uh, airplane from a historical perspective, but really try to dig into how it's represented on the table in Blood Red Skies. But before we get to that, we're going to stick with our usual format and uh, get into some other things like our flight line, right? That's what's being worked on. What do you got going on, Steve? I saw that you posted something you've been painting. Yeah, I've got uh, got some uh, Avengers that are all done, all painted. Uh, so hopefully in the next day or two, we'll get some decals on them, get a little weathering on them and get those all wrapped up. Were those the Avengers we were talking about canopies on? Oh, yeah, man. They're just... Uh, those early war planes, just painting all the ribs on the canopies, it'll it'll wear you out. I think it took me as long to do the canopies as it took to paint everything, every other thing on them. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of like support structure around the canopy on those. Now, I thought I saw that you had base coated some were they Wildcats or something, or is that the Avengers you're talking about? Yeah, those are the Avengers. So I I uh, yeah I broke the airbrush out for these. The first ones I broke out the airbrush for. So I just tried to speed up the. Uh, you know, the base coat and the overall color on them and uh, definitely sped it up from the three or four, you know, brush coats of trying to get everything nice and smooth. So if you don't have an airbrush, I'd say uh, even if you're not an expert at it, grab one and, and give it a shot. That's good advice. Yeah, it sure makes things fast. If you've got a squatter to work on, you can at least get those base coats down really fast, right? I'm uh, sadly, I'm still crawling with these AT-111s. Um, I don't think I touched them much at all in the last few days. And really, I don't have much left to do but canopies and then get the uh, decals and stuff on them. So hopefully next time we talk, I'll uh, be able to uh, say they're complete and get some pictures up on Facebook. Let's let's move on to our Intel update. What have we been seeing that's new coming out? I, I know that um, we've got the Gathering of Eagles 2021 coming up in New Orleans. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that because this is going to be amazing. Now, you and I went to Gathering of Eagles in um, Indianapolis, the last one we did. And you know, it was noteworthy because we were sort of in sort of the middle of COVID here in the U.S. and we still managed to pull that off. I'm thinking now people are really, really got to be ready to get the heck out of Dodge and do something. Well, this year it's in June, June 4 to 6 in New Orleans. 
It's going to be at the Higgins Hotel and Conference Center. If you've not heard of that, it's amazing because it's like a 40s hotel. I don't, I've never been there. I don't know if it was actually a, a historical hotel from the 40s or if it's just built with this 40s theme. It's directly across the street from the National World War II Museum. In fact, the area where we're going to have our event is going to be in the uh, Operation Overlord Boardroom, which is amazing. I wish we could show more pictures up and stuff. But, um, man, if you're not doing anything... In June, first week of June, come to New Orleans and let's play some Blood Red Skies. What do you think, Steve? Man, I'm excited. Uh, I know I'm definitely planning on getting in the Thursday before, hopefully take some time, check out the uh, National World War II Museum. Uh, Yeah, I'm excited. Like you said, Indianapolis was fun. Uh, Right in the middle of COVID, right? We got through it. Nobody got sick, had a good time. Uh, but this is gonna be this is gonna be great. Like you said, everybody's ready to go. Everybody's ready to do some gaming, hang out, have some drinks, eat some good food, and and let's hang out, play some games. Yeah, it was a great time. It was the first time I'd ever played in a in a kind of a tournament setting, and that was so much fun because we didn't just do that. We did you know some open games and some other things, but the tournament game was super fun. I can't wait to do that again. In fact, you know I think everybody's tired of hearing how. Um, living in an apartment, waiting to buy my new house. Well, every, that means that everything I own plane wise practically is in storage somewhere where there's no chance for me to get to it. So I may be fielding some BF 109 G's that I have sitting on my table, nearly painted. Uh, I, I ran with the list of the BF 109 F's last time, but I might just put these G's to work. We'll see. Anyway, my, uh, my options may be kind of limited because, uh, I'm not going to get to any of the planes. I'm either going to have to paint something entirely new or use what I what limited stuff I have here on my table, so it'll be fun either way. But uh, yeah, so just to throw that out there, really hoping that guys uh, and girls hear this and are interested to coming to the Gathering of Eagles, Eagles because it will be so much fun, and I'm thinking that National World War II Museum is going to be a real cool part of that. So uh, what else is new out there? I've seen uh, some rumors that there's some new rock sculpts coming our way. What can you tell us? Yeah, you know... Uh ROC Works, man, they've been really, really pounding stuff out lately. So uh, I know two models. Uh, we got some American medium bombers coming out. I don't want to, I don't want to ruin Rich's, uh, you know, Rich's thunder, given all the details. But we're gonna have some American medium bombers, uh, some other twin engine American planes. Uh, we have some more French planes, I think, that just got released, and. Uh, Man, it's like every every model that comes out from ROC Works, it's like it just outdoes the one before and then the one before and the one before. It's really, the sculpts have just been really, really incredible. And uh, now if you're in the United States, you can also order ROC physical models uh, from Lead Pursuit Podcast. So Doug has kind of been pulling some strings behind the scene and has worked it out. So LPP uh, can now sell ROC works to you guys in the States. So those of you that don't have a 3d printer in the States, uh, you can get in touch on the lead pursuit podcast web store and pick them up local and save on some of that shipping and get them a little quicker. Hey, we're hooking up people with the foam too, right? Is that something folks can order right from the site as well? 
Yeah, there's a couple different versions of foam on the Lead Preserve podcast uh, web store. So the uh, 6 plus 1 foam, it's a, a 6 by 12 cut that has enough. It's uh, for one squadron plus an ace. So your six squadron models you'd get in a box plus one ace uh, fit in a conformal foam for your aircraft. And there are also some uh, 12 by 12 foam options on there as well. So, uh, yeah, always, you know, you can always check out the Lead Pursuit podcast store. There's some different chit sets, uh, rulers, measurement templates, movement templates, all kinds of stuff. So uh, always welcome to check out the Lead Pursuit podcast store. You know, when I get moved into my new place, whenever that may be, and I get all my things unpacked, one of the very first things I'm going to do is get foam for all my existing collection. And uh, I understand that some of the foam you guys have cranked out uh, fits some popular uh, travel bags for miniatures and foam so I can get the foam for my planes and then get a bag from another vendor and all my stuff is ready to travel so that's that's a must do that's something I'm definitely doing uh, besides stuff from ROC works you've been busy with Blue Falcon paints haven't you yeah you know it's kind of been uh it's kind of funny how that snowballed so just all the different random stuff i make for all kinds of tabletop hobbies uh just kind of started to throw it up on a website so it's bluefalconhobbies.com you can check it out we have a uh, man everything from miniature sports tabletop games we're getting our uh blood red sky stuff up there now we're gonna have our line of paints finally being marketed we had a bunch of guys out there trying it out for us uh are you know specifically formulated for brush painting uh, but i was just talking about the airbrush i ran it through the airbrush on my avengers and i, I really liked it uh, but yeah bluefalconhobbies.com if you're bored surfing the web you could check it out and uh just kind of a, a stop for anything that you think is hobby related and uh if anybody has any ideas or requests you know we're kind of taking all kinds of uh requests and we've been doing some stuff with ROC works and uh fights on is another one we've been working with and just kind of touching base with all kinds of guys in the hobby just to help make people's ideas come to a uh, actual physical life on the tabletop well that's kind of how all this thing started I mean we were hearing interesting ideas and people asking for things and uh, some of us I won't include myself in the uh, proverbial us, but uh, some of us have the skills and the know-how to make these things happen. So it's exciting to see that we can actually provide a little bit more. Um, I have used the Blue Falcon paints, the white that you gave me, and uh, on all those AT111s, and I was very impressed. Uh, so I can I can say from personal experience that the uh, the paints are good. So I'm happy to use them. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about some other things that are kind of on the horizon from LPP. You know, we've got the Gathering of Eagles coming. Last Gathering of Eagles, we brought with us as part of like a swag bag thing for attendees, some Lead Pursuit podcast unofficial ace cards that we had worked on. And uh, we have more of those potentially on the way. So if you're coming to coming to the uh, Gathering of Eagles, you may get to get your hands on some new Lead Pursuit podcast aces. Uh, we hope to also... Uh, further unveil the Malta scenarios. Uh, that's something that we actually, uh, for those that have listened to earlier episodes, that whole Malta campaign thing was something we intended to unveil and make a big thing out of at um, the uh, Adepticon that got canceled because of COVID. 
And uh, so more opportunity for us to debut some of that stuff at Gathering of Eagles. So if you're there, you get, get to see that. And also, I believe we may be in a point where we can have some maybe introductory copies or something like that at Gathering of Eagles for the campaign system you and I have spent, I don't know, how many hundreds of hours working on. You think we can make that? Oh, man, I am so excited. Uh, I think, you know, at Gathering of Eagles, we uh, did some good revision on it. Uh, and I think now we're finally ready to put that thing to bed and get some get some pre-production copies out there for people to evaluate. And I th- I'll be honest with you, I think by June it's going to be done. It's going to be ready to publish, whether that you know it gets published through Andy himself, whether it gets published through Lead Pursuit Podcast. But uh, I'm confident to say that by that first week of June that it will it will be ready for publishing. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, one thing I can say, I know people probably are tired of hearing me mention the campaign system over and over and over again for what months? We've been working on this now uh, for, well, at Gathering of Eagles, it will have been a year because we started on it literally. I started purposefully trying to write up something that we would share with others maybe the day after uh, the last gathering of Eagles. It was the last, um, not the last physical gathering of Eagles. It was our virtual gathering of Eagles. Because I remember I left Doug's house after doing a session where we just kind of talked about what you and I have been doing. And that was the inspiration for, you know, let's make something that we can share with others. Well, the one thing I'm super happy about is you and I have spent so much time working on it is that the, the, the text, the narrative, the rule set, all of that is solid. Everything you and I have been working on mostly in the last, you know, several hundred hours, it seems like, is just formatting and getting it in a, a, a kind of a concise uh, format so that it's easy to read, easy to flip through things from flow charts and all that kind of stuff. It's been a big thing to work on. Uh, but I'm super stoked that um, everything you and I have worked on just from our games, as far as the mechanics and the rules and stuff, that's all solid and we've played dozens of games now and have found it to be super fun so just i'm just excited to be able to share that in some format and like you said probably some pre-release copy the very least will be something folks that attend gathering of eagles may get a chance to walk away with so we'll we'll know more as we get closer so let's move on now to our main topic i mentioned at the start at our intro that this is kind of a new thing we want to try out it's an idea we had some time ago about spotlighting a specific aircraft now we don't intend to you know try to suggest in any way that we know all there is to know about the history of these things but we have our little pet projects for me the bf 109 is a fan favorite and that's the that's the aircraft we're going to spotlight today so uh in in this episode and in future episodes i think what you could come to expect is you know just kind of a brief spotlight on the background of the aircraft maybe what makes it significant from a historical standpoint maybe there's some interesting design notes or you know we can cover some of the kind of the basics about where the particular aircraft was used uh, we'd like to be able to share some overview of the different variants it was used and um, maybe talk about some of the units and some of the aces that flew the aircraft now what we'd really like to be able to get into is some discussion about the uh, aircraft in terms of how it plays on the table in blood red skies and we could talk about the stats of course where you can find the um the aircraft if it's available in a squadron box or something from warlord games where you can get the cards and the, that go with it uh have a little conversation about the historical and uh, 
theater and doctrine cards that may go well with that aircraft, and then even talk about just overall impressions, how it plays in the game, and then even some tournament tournament list building ideas. So, like I said we're going to start with the BF109, and uh, this was an idea that came up probably several months ago, but I've been reading the book Black Tulip by Eric Schmidt in preparation for a future episode where we're going to interview Eric about his novel, his book about uh, Eric Hartman. And of course, Eric Hartman flew the BF-109. And this is, I want to read a direct quote from the book that inspired me to come back to this idea about the aircraft spotlight and start with the BF-109. Okay. He says, from an engineering standpoint, it is appealing not for any obvious grace, but for its stripped down essential construction. Every part in harmony with the others, every function simplified as much as possible. The 109 tempts us toward that most overused German cultural cliche, a design based in aggressive practicality, unadorned with anything superfluous, utilitarian to the point of being characterless, except with the 109, the utility, the terrible, destructive, pounding utility is precisely where the character comes from. Man, I read that and I thought, that's exactly why I love the BF-109. I don't know how many of them I have painted and otherwise, but um, I just think they're so cool with their weird, bumpy cowling and even just the color schemes and the splinter camouflage. From the very first day we were at the Warlord Games counter at the Depticon, and we were all going, uh, I say we, it was me, Chris, and Doug. We were all going in there to grab different airplanes and start this collection. I was thinking in the back of my head, man, I hope those guys aren't interested in a Luftwaffe because I want those, and that's how it worked out. Well, I love the 109. It's uh, kind of what started me in this uh, pursuit, and uh, it's just, a, to me, just a super cool-looking plane. And I love playing with them. We, uh, you and I, Steve, have been playing tons of campaign games, and so far that's all I've gotten into. We haven't progressed long enough uh, because we've sort of halted our gameplay to work on the campaign rule set, we haven't gotten farther enough into the campaign to where I'm flying fuck wolves and stuff like that. But uh, I'm happy to have you on to talk about this because even though you haven't played the 109s much yourself, you've certainly been on the business end of them, I'd say. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, definitely, I have a view of how you've used them and kind of what they make me think of when I'm playing against them. So I think it'll be, think it'll be a good episode. We've had a lot of table hours uh, with 109s. Well, let's talk a little bit about the historical significance of the BF-109, right? So initially, the 109 was designed to be a short-range interceptor, and I think most people recognize that the 109 is really the backbone of Luftwaffe, Luftwaffe fighter production throughout the entire war. And, and I kind of liken it a little bit to the Spitfire. It's super popular like the Spitfire is. I mean, if, if you, uh, even if you don't collect Luftwaffe, uh, you know that that's like the dominant plane, right? Like the Spitfire seems to be, even from a cultural standpoint, it's, it's sort of iconic, if you will, right? Like as, as the British Spitfire is iconic, I think, to the RAF, one might say the 109 is iconic to the Luftwaffe. And, uh, you know, there's some similarities there, if not in performance and all those other things, but just by virtue of the fact that uh, both aircraft were sort of the workhorse that spanned the entire war. Through different variants and upgrades, you saw the 109 start, you know, gosh, Spanish Civil War, and maybe a little earlier, all the way to the end of the war and all its different variants. 
And, um, you know, one thing I, I've had people or heard people ask questions about, or at least recognize, is that it's the Messerschmitt 109, but it's the BF 109. What the heck is going on with that naming convention, right? And, and here's the answer to that. So I guess with the Luftwaffe and German planes in general, I guess, the, uh, the, the 109, of course, was designed by Willy Messerschmitt, but it was built by BFW. That's uh, Bayerisch Flugzeugwerke. How about that for some, some uh, German, right? So uh, that's otherwise known as the Bavarian Aircraft Works, right? That's, that's why it has the BF de designation. That's just kind of their naming convention. The folks who assemble it or build it get the, uh, get the title on a nomenclature, I guess. So uh, I guess to be super accurate, it is the BF-109. Um, one noteworthy thing about the BF-109, it's actually something I didn't actually know until I started reading a little bit about the aircraft for this episode, is that you know there were more than twice as many BF-109s built than P-51 Mustangs. I, I kind of thought part of the uh, part of the thing that destroyed the Luftwaffe was that there were just so many American and other Allied planes, you know, they were just outproduced, right? But the BF-109 was the most produced fighter aircraft in World War II. Uh, I guess part of that might be, you know, maybe Luftwaffe didn't have as many different types of airplanes because, of course, the Americans didn't just have P-51s and the uh, RAF didn't just have Spitfires, but man, they made, the Germans made a ton of BF-109s. I don't know the exact figure, but I think it was like over 30,000 uh, BF-109s made in their different different variants. I don't know if that surprised you, Steve, but that kind of, that, that took me by surprise when I read that. Yeah, ab absolutely insane, right? And uh, all of the other countries that also were licensed to produce uh, a version of Willie Messerschmitt's 109, uh, just insane amount of production on the BF-109. Yeah, I had no idea that the 109s were used so far after the war. I, I found that I was reading into it and found that uh, some 109s were used well into the 50s, some into the 60s. I guess Spain was using 109s and some variants into the 60s. And uh, there were several other services, like you suggested, that were still flying them well after the war into the 50s and stuff, like uh, Sweden, Finland, Romania. That's nuts. I had no idea. That was something I, I did not know at all about the 109. So, I mean, to think to think about that for a second, when the 109 was being designed, you know, retractable landing gear was like a major technological advancement. To think that that is now flying in the 60s when you're talking about we are well into the age of the jet age fighter. And I mean, like some serious jets, you know, the Phantoms uh, talking air to air missiles at that point. So it's just crazy longevity for that airplane. Yeah, there's some interesting circumstances. I don't know all the history of it, but you know, the Israelis flew 109s at some point. And I guess there's even some instances where 109s were fighting Spitfires again, but uh, the 109s were piloted by Israeli pilots. I don't know the whole story, but it's just crazy. There were a lot of them out there, and they persisted well after the war. That's the That was the big surprise there. Now, let's let's get into the uh, most notable variant, variants, right? So I think most people probably think of well, I don't know if they do, but Battle of Britain, right? Top of mind, maybe when you're thinking about World War II single-engine fighter aircraft. And that's where you see the BF-109E, affectionately known as the EMIL, right? Probably most known for the Battle of Britain. And you know, at the time, the BF-109E was, you know, arguably 
the most uh, uh, capable and deadly fighter plane of its time. When the E was flying around, there was very little outside of a Spitfire that uh, was its match. Uh, one reason for that is uh, the armament. Uh, the, the 109s had, you know, even I guess the early versions had a 20 millimeter cannon, which was far more powerful than, you know, machine gun, uh, wing mounted machine guns and a lot of the other aircraft of its time. Uh, it also had some engine uh, capabilities that just made it stand out. I, it had uh, fuel injection and uh, allowed it to perform maneuvers without losing power, whereas even notably early uh, Spitfires could get into some trouble if they were you know, performing a steep dive or something. They might lose power to inopportune time, and, and they had uh, Spitfire pilots had to learn to uh, work around that until that was overcome mechanically. So uh, kind of a, uh, you know, as an early entry, the 109E was a formidable weapon. Uh, after the 109E, we see the BF-109F called the Franz. I think most notably we see that in the Mediterranean. And I think a lot of historians consider the F to be sort of the the best variant of all the 109s. I, I don't know if that's exactly how you would see it on the table, but that's, uh, sources say, <laughs> the F is often considered the, uh, you know, the, the sort of the benchmark 109, if you will. After the F, we have the G, the Gustav. And when I think of the Gustav, I think of Eastern Front. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, you know, uh, I guess the downside as they moved up from the F, you know, they got heavier armament, heavier engines, uh, kept adding things to it. But uh, yeah, I believe the Gustav had a had the cannon through the spinner, uh, really formidable, formidable armament uh, against uh, the Russians on the Eastern Front. Yeah, I think that the G6 actually upgraded to a 30 millimeter cannon. So we're really getting some pretty substantial firepower. And uh, I don't know which version of it it is. And I don't know if it was one that was as widely produced as all of them, but I saw one that had sort of a bubble canopy, whereas other versions of the 109 seem to have that real birdcage kind of canopy, which might be, you know, kind of limiting from a, you know, visibility perspective for the pilot. I don't know that I just saw, I just saw an image of a 109 and it kind of struck me because the canopy looked more like that kind of bubble canopy. It stuck out to me when I saw it and there was some footnote in the, under the photograph. It was a 109G of some variant that uh, had that. And I thought that's pretty cool. Just not something you see all the time. Okay. After the Gustav, you have the K, the Carl, and that might be most noteworthy for defense of the Reich, you know, late war stuff, right? So I think the thing that set it apart from the earlier models was its superior rate of climb. I saw it uh, noted that it could outclimb, you know, even the most powerful allied fighters of its time. So pretty powerful. Now, of course, these guys, I presume, were most interested in getting up and knocking down, knocking down bombers. And uh, we'll get into the the stats on these cards in blood. I mean, on these aircraft in Blood Red Skies. But you definitely see a difference in each one of these models. There's a difference in what they bring to the table. So, before we uh, get to that, though, let's talk about some of the noteworthy units that flew the BF-109. Uh, Let's see. We have been playing a lot of campaign games. Do you remember the squadron that uh, that I fly in our campaign, Steve? 
Oh, geez, you you put me on the spot here. I, I do not. Uh, I know a lot of the fictional pilots by name, uh, just from the, uh, you know, the bounties that my guys in the ready room have put on their heads. But uh, no, I can't for the life of me tell you the squad. Right, right. Well, we haven't played in a while, so I'll give you a pass. So, you know, in our campaigns, of course, it's a little historical fiction because we start with, you know, historical timeline and the aircraft matchups and stuff and maybe even pick a uh, squadron to sort of base our fantasy on but after that it just it, it takes a life of its own M- well mine is jg26 is what i've uh, based mine off of my fighter squadron anyway and that's one of the more famous battle of britain and even mediterranean uh, squadrons um or uh yeah squadron i guess you call it uh or fighter groups uh adolf galan notably was uh, one of the commanders for that unit so kind of a standout unit there uh if um uh, for those that are following along at home, if you're painting these models and you're buying decals and stuff from Warlord Games, those are the ones with the big badge that it's like a shield with the letter S on it for Schlageter. Uh, that was uh, kind of the unit emblem that most of their aircraft had on the side. So, Also, uh, Eastern Front, a noteworthy unit, is JG-52. And I think when you look into it, a lot of these guys, a lot of the highest scoring aces were all in JG-52, just slaying guys on the Eastern Front. And then uh, I made a note here about one more squadron that flew 109s that's sort of noteworthy is JG-1, and they're most noteworthy for their actions in the defense of the Reich. So uh, how about notable aces? Can you think of any notable aces, Steve? I mean... uh Eric Hartman is the go-to, right? That's he, right. He's we, the top top ace ever, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, the most lethal fighter pilot in history, right? And that's kind of talking a little bit about early in the, sh- the show here. We were talking about that quote I read from from the book about Eric Hartman. He flew the 109. Uh, there's also Gunther Rawl, and uh, I always think of I always think of our Air Commodore from the last gathering of Eagles. Uh, Scott Atchison, he loves Heinz Barr. That's, that's a noteworthy ace that flew the 109. And then uh, another one that comes to mind is Herman Groff. He's a, he's a really high scoring ace that flew the 109. Um, so that's pretty much it for our historical kind of perspective, right? Wanted to just talk a little bit about maybe some of the noteworthy things about the aircraft themselves and some of the units and ace pilots that flew it. But now let's really tuck in and try to ferret out how all this gets condensed and plugged into the stats and so forth in Blood Red Sky. So to start off with, we've got the BF-109E. We'll, we'll do it in, in sort of that chronolog- chronological order, if you will. The BF-109E is uh, firepower 1, agility 3, and speed 7 at 354 miles per hour. Now, that model those stats really kind of defined my early blood red skies gaming experience and i would say i certainly have the most games under my belt with those stats and probably gave me good and bad habits and maybe describe some of that uh it comes with great dive and great climb if uh if you don't know what great dive is it's um it gives you the opportunity to add your maximum move when diving versus just six inches. Now, since the 109E is only speed seven, that's not a tremendous 
bonus in your dive. It's an extra inch, right? But when you start getting to these later models that have more speed, you'll start to see a pretty big upgrade in that great dive. Great climb lets you, uh, let's see, if an enemy within 12 inches is attempting to climb, they have to pass a maneuver test. Now, you've been on the business end of that card a bunch in our games, haven't you, Steve? Yeah, that that card is a that card's a nasty card. If nobody has used that card or played against that card, uh, I'll say playing against that card really kind of makes me reevaluate uh, my strategy. Whereas that climbing for advantage is always automatic, kind of makes you reevaluate that, and uh, a lot of times has me second guessing the moves I make. So it's definitely a uh, definitely one of those uh, blue falcon cards as you got coined for using it. Yeah, it, it has become sort of the cornerstone to a denial list I call the Blue Falcon, the Blue Falcon list, because, yeah, it's all about denying the enemy's ability to do tricks or take opportunity, you know, just to do anything, right? If, if I have it my way and all the cards are working, you, it shuts down your ability to climb back up to advantage or take a pilot action or use a trait card. There's all kinds of things. We'll get into more of that. A little bit later but I, I just wanted to kind of cover what great dive and great climb do because that's going to be super important for most of the 109 models on the table so the next one is the bf 109 f and that comes in at uh let's see firepower one agility three again now speed eight at 390 miles per hour and i could tell you that in the games where i've upgraded from the 109 e to the 109 f it feels like a distinct upgrade. That extra bit of speed now makes great dive start to become pretty significant because now I'm adding eight to my dive instead of just six. And I know it only sounds like two inches on paper, but two inches, you realize the difference with two inches. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, the, the one thing it can do for you is if you're playing a straight dogfight scenario where you need to deploy uh 18 inches away from the next closest element uh that extra two inches of movement on the dive now you could get into uh depending on deployment you could start to get into some shooting attacks on the first turn if you catch somebody sleeping yeah i feel like it really starts to matter a little bit more when you get to the f's it no i didn't mention it the uh the bf 109e is 31 points and that's pretty bargain that's that's a pretty good price uh the 109 e's as models are also available in a warlord game squadron box that come with the great dive and great climb cards the bf 109 f however it's available in as a the squadron card is available at least in the um luftwaffe expansion pack there isn't a warlord games model but i can tell you roc works makes a fabulous 109 f that you can get with tropical filters it looks beautiful uh the 109 f jumps up five points to now 36 points and this is where when i was list building for the last live goe i was really those points started to become kind of critical and i was only fielding a handful of planes 31 points versus 36 points i was looking at um i was really trying to weigh back and forth the pros and cons of going with ease for the cheaper points and maybe being able to throw on an extra equipment card or something or have more planes versus the um, the F model with the extra speed but more points. 
uh, the F, just like the E, also has great dive and great climb. So you would probably fly it the same way, but uh, you just have to decide how much the extra speed is worth for you if you're doing like a tournament list. Next one on the list is the BF-109G. Now we mentioned in the, you know, the historians or whatever, many, uh, uh, many sources say that the BF-109F was sort of the pinnacle of the 109. But the BF-109G, I think, may be sort of the sweet spot on the Blood Red Skies table. And here's why I say that. Here are the stats. It's firepower 2, agility 2, speed 8. So you're keeping the same speed. We're going to go up to 370 miles per hour, 397 miles per hour. So a little bit faster, still speed 8. But that firepower 2... I can tell you, in so many of the games I've played with you, Steve, there's been times where I have my whole wolf pack of planes trying to pounce on one little guy, and with my Fs at Firepower 1, I might. I, it's happened before, I'm sure, where I've had three, four, or more planes take their turn at shooting a guy that was disadvantaged, and nothing happens. That extra firepower, I think, is a good trade for losing one point of agility what do you think steve uh i i think definitely i never see myself uh building a tournament list of 109s uh but if i was going to build a list of 109s i would without a doubt take the 109g with the two firepower two agility and eight speed yeah these guys go up to 37 points so not a big point difference between the f and the g i'm strongly i'm gonna at least build a list for the next gathering of eagles with g's i'm looking across the table right now at some that i just got to put decals on and uh that i tell you that extra firepower looks really attractive i'm not gonna lie these uh the g's are available in a warlord games squadron box they're made with that new um warlord resin and uh, i've painted some I, I think uh when we did the virtual gathering of eagles last summer I painted some on camera and, uh, you know, kind of unboxed them and everything, and, and I found them to be pretty good. So uh, the next model we're going to talk about in any real detail is the BF-109K, the Carl. Okay, this one now is a totally different animal. Firepower 3, Agility 1, Speed 9 at 442 miles per hour, and now the traits change. We're going to keep Great Climb. But now we're going to add in Heavy Hitter. This one comes in at 43 points. So I think it's looking like a real gunboat, which I think maybe adequately just, you know, represents what, this, uh, what the K model was designed to do. The, uh, the squadron card for the BF-109K, you find it in the Luftwaffe expansion pack like you do the BF-109F. What are your thoughts, Steve? Yeah, I don't know that the 109K would be fun to play really in a tournament list or a tournament setting, but uh, on the last day of Gathering of Eagles uh, in Indianapolis, we played a scenario where we had uh, some, I believe it was P-39s going after some medium bombers, uh, just kind of a side game going on, and I could see the 109K being super fun to play in kind of a defense of the Reich scenario. Uh, where you're going after bombers with it, uh, I, I think it'd be a really fun aircraft to just play on the table, but not not so much for a tournament setting. Yeah, I think that price point is going to keep you really kind of out of 
tournament play with him. And, and we're going to get a little bit more into tournament tournament list building and maybe some card combinations and stuff with these planes. I think you're right. I think the K isn't really going to make that list. But, man, if you're playing, like in our games, uh, into a, like a, a campaign game or you're just doing a pickup game where you know you're going to be you know, fighting bombers, this thing, I think, is just going to wreck bombers. I think of it a lot like the uh, 110Cs that I play against your bombers in our campaign game currently, and they do the Lord's work against bombers in most instances. Imagine these Ks. They're less points. They retain heavy hitter. They're just as much firepower, but man, look how fast they are. I think you could really do some business on some on some bombers with these guys. Yeah, you know, I almost kind of want to paint up some B-17s or something like that and have a little have a little defense of the Reichs, late war defense of the Reich scenario going. It'd probably be really fun. Yeah, I think you're right. Now, there's one more model I think it, it's really because of a conversation I had today about some uh, maybe a more experimental aircraft, but there's it, it, it actually just came up today and I added it to my notes here. The BF-109H, otherwise known as the BV-155. This is an aircraft that was in development uh, it was canceled in favor of the ME-262, but it was basically a BF-109G with a super powerful engine and different wings, and it was designed to just shoot down bombers. I don't know what the stats would look like on that. Uh, maybe that's something that we'll mess with for uh, maybe the alternative ready room, but uh, I didn't even know about that, so I thought it was worth just as a footnote here in this discussion. Of course, there's no cards or stats official from warlord on this yet and we don't even have a, a beta card for it but you know that might be something that might be fun to play around with okay so let's let's uh move away from this discussion of the cards themselves for the planes and when we come back from our break let's talk about historical doctrine cards that pair nice with these traits Right, and we're back. So let's get into the historical doctrine cards that pair nice with these traits. So we know we were talking about Great Dive. Let's start there. Great Dive, one of the mainstay cards of the BF-109. Now, uh, when you go to the historical doctrine cart matrix in Airstrike, under Axis Powers, you're going to see, or at least under Luftwaffe, you're going to see Dive Away. And this is a powerful card. It lets you... Uh, use Great Dive as a bonus, and it gives you the chance to dive even when your pilot is disadvantaged. That doesn't suck. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, I mean, that's a you know, major part of the game uh, when you're attacking somebody is forcing them down advantage level. Still having that option to dive away, especially when you get into an 8-speed or a 9-speed plane, can really get you out of trouble in a hurry. Yeah, yeah. We've used that in some of our... Um some of our campaign games to good effect if I ever get in trouble, in it, especially with an F, uh, where I've got speed eight, I can kind of get out of dodge with that and still climb up once I get away. So that's a good time. The next card that pairs well is Sustain Dive. You find this in the Luftwaffe expansion pack, and um, it also uses Great Dive as a bonus. It's also found on the uh, Luftwaffe page of the uh, Historical Doctrine chart. And uh, if you're going to burn advantage to dive you pass a maneuver test and you regain that advantage 
I, in a lot of ways, I think that's even more powerful than dive away. Do you have any thoughts on that, Steve? Yeah, I mean, it, it, crazy, crazy thought, right? So you are have an advantage playing, you dive, you come out of it, you wind up still staying advantaged. I mean, that that could definitely be a game changer on the attack for sure. Yeah, it's it's a. Uh, I know I've used it to good effect too. It's kind of neat. It's you you burn advantage and then you roll a maneuver test, and if you pass, you immediately go back to your previous advantage state. So yeah, that's good times. And then you, you continue to roll like you were doing. You know, continue to dive and do your, all your stuff. So it's good stuff. All right. Um, the last one that you find in the historical chart, anyway, is compression issues. This one, uh, when an enemy dives, the enemy must pass a maneuver test to do their to do their pilot action. So this is kind of cool because it kind of goes back into that denial list thing because you know, somebody near you is trying to dive. I don't think there's even a range associated with this one. So if you've got somebody on a table, you have the card available, somebody tries to dive, you go, no, 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 roll a mover test. <laughs> That's always a good time for me when that happens. I haven't used compression issues nearly as much as I've used sustained dive, but it's something to think about maybe in a future, um, future Blue Falcon list. I don't know. I have to take another look at that one. All right, let's, let's move on to uh, Great Climb, the, the cards, the historical doctrine cards that pair nicely with that. The first one that comes to mind is High Altitude Performance. You find this card in the Luftwaffe Expansion Pack, and really the powerful thing about this is it adds plus two to the skill when you're trying to outmaneuver someone. That's so powerful because, uh, you know, more than just adding more dice to the attempt, it's you know, you've got a guy who's pilot skill three. Now all of a sudden he's pilot skill five. He's just auto outmaneuvering everybody around him, right? Yeah, even more than that. I mean, you talk about a tournament list where you're trying to maximize uh, points levels. So you're taking some skill two and skill three pilots. Now all of a sudden your skill threes are outmaneuvering pretty much anybody on the table. Your skill twos are outmaneuvering, you know, threes automatically. It's that That's a powerful card, especially combining it with the great climb bonus, so you can keep that card in your hand, uh, use it three, four times per turn. That that could be some some powerful stuff there. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And we'll talk more about tournament lists, but that's something to to uh, to keep in mind. That's because I think in a lot of tournament lists, you're going to be struggling to have high skill pilots. Now all of a sudden, you're basically making high skill pilots with a card like this, right? That's solid. All right, the last one that follows into this is seasoned pilots and um take a look for me steve if you have the cards in front of you is seasoned pilots in any way associate is it a, a bonus for great climb seasoned pilots is a bonus for great climb so you get to keep it and uh burn a great climb card instead and seasoned pilots is the, is the good old-fashioned uh if you fail a maneuver test, you get to re-roll that test. So just a, a good utilitarian card, uh, and having great climb as the bonus, uh, you know, really really works along with that. Yeah, I lost sight of the fact that it was that it paired specifically with great climb. I have it on my notes here because it's in the historical doctrine card chart uh, that um, is for the. Um, for the Luftwaffe, and the reason it comes to mind for me, the season pilots card, not so much because of great climb, but it's that historical context of you know early war. You know the Luftwaffe pilots were kind of feared in a lot of ways. Not only did they have the 109E, which is a very capable aircraft, but I think the pilots were considered to be, you know, 
pretty seasoned as well. I mean, they they had flown, many of them had flown combat in Spain and were well-trained from the get-go and, and, and caught many of their opponents in, in historically sort of off foot, right? Because they were just more skilled. And, and that's how I think of that. And I forgot the fact that it bonuses with great climbs. That's, that's kind of cool. All right, last one for the historical doctrine cards is heavy hitter. Since we got the BF109K, we should probably talk about that. And this is all perfectly suited for this idea of the BF109K being a bomber killer. The first one's head-on attack, right? So a head-on crit on a multi-engine aircraft means that it's an automatic boom to the target. That's pretty powerful. You're going to be going, you're going to be using this plane if you're doing it right against bombers. If you have head-on attack, it's going to bonus with heavy hitter, and it's just going to make your crits even that much more deadly. And then last but not least, big game hunters. You find this one also in the Luftwaffe expansion pack. Any undodged crit on a disadvantaged multi-engine aircraft means two booms go to the target. Pretty solid. Again, I don't think you'll see this in a, any kind of like tournament setting so much because of the points. But man, if you're playing a game or a campaign where you need to be fighting bombers, this is just making that 109K look even more solid. All right. We've talked about doctrine cards. I think now we should just roll right into the theater cards, right? Because... Just like Airstrike gives you a, do, uh, a chart for your historical doctrine cards, they do the same thing for your theater cards, so we can look at some of those that pair nicely. Uh, superior armament. Now, of course, there's no bonus or anything with the trait cards, but I think if, just like we are talking about the historical context, that 109 having the 20 or the 30 millimeter cannon in the nose, man, that's powerful. In early war especially, man, you were outgunning a lot of people. A lot, of, a lot of your opponents. So superior armament is going to give you plus one firepower. Uh, poorly trained opponents. You find that in the Luftwaffe expansion pack. That's a great card. It gives you... Um, uh, your your uh, opponent has to pass a maneuver test to take a pilot action. Again, just another potential denial. Those are always fun. I see a theme here with the 109. It's like everything is sort of weighted heavy towards denying your opponent's ability to do stuff. All right. I put on here tropical conditions. Uh, tropical conditions is, you know, probably more one of those weather cards. You think about a theater or theater card. Uh, but it's, I think, worth mentioning because with the BF109F, the TROP version, it just kind of fits nicely with that idea of throwing on the tropical filters equipment card. And, man, those ROC Works F models with the TROPs are so nice looking. And it just, I don't know, I, I'm stuck, you know, I don't know, maybe it's almost become Lead Pursuit Podcast brand, this whole idea of what's going on in Malta, because we spent so much time with the research and stuff. I can't help but think of 109s with the big trop filters in, uh, in the Mediterranean. So I'd throw that one out there. Uh, that's pretty much it for the historical theater cards. There's some weather cards I want to talk about, but I think that's probably better a better thing to cover when we get into our discussion about list building for tournaments and stuff. So I'll save that for then. Uh, there is something that's, uh, you know, it's not a historical theater card or doctrine card or anything like that, but it's something we've included, a consideration we've included for all the aircraft where this is appropriate in our campaign system. We have a thing, there's a whole part of the post-game section where you do a landing check, right? And some aircraft that were notoriously hard to land because of like the weird narrow 
landing gear arrangement that the 109 was sort of famous for, infamous for, uh, you take a little nerf to your landing checks. And uh, that was uh, kind of a historical challenge with the 109. I think especially when you consider some of these unimproved grass runways that they were operating out of, there were many aircraft and even pilots lost due to landing and takeoff mishaps with the sort of tricky narrow landing gear. Uh, so no real card or anything that represents that. But in our campaign system, we have something that reflects that for some aircraft like the 109. So what do you think overall gaming impressions? I mean, just all the stats and everything aside, Steve, you've been on the receiving end of a lot of 109s. Do you have any like over overall thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think it's, I think it definitely, uh, pairs well, obviously, like it was designed to with the, with the starter box Spitfires, right? So it's a good, even match when you're fighting Battle of Britain stuff. Uh, and I think when you start pairing it with the right trait cards and, or the right doctrine cards that pair well with trait cards and, uh, I think it does become a very capable aircraft. Uh, it doesn't suit the style of game that I really like to play myself, but it's not because it's not capable. That's just more of a personal preference. But uh, certainly you could show up with some 109s and and really have a go against anybody. Yeah, it's. I can't say that it's like an auto win. That's certainly not the case with 109s. But man, I've never had a bad time playing them. It's always been a ton of fun. I've sort of leaned into this denial list thing when it um, comes to tournament play, and we're going to get into some of that a little bit more. But my overall impression of 109 just playing with them, I feel like uh, maybe the biggest takeaway, it was playing the 109 that made me have a greater appreciation for the bonus cards, right? Pairing... uh, doctrine cards that are have bonuses to great climb and great dive you know you can pick of course uh doctrine cards that don't do that but you really kind of need every advantage you can get when you're playing a 109 so playing those uh, doctrine cards we mentioned that pair well with the basic aircraft traits is a real strong way to go i think you get more mileage more more capability out of your game if you do that. And that was sort of a lesson I learned by doing it both ways and, and figuring out like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I figure out the formula here. That was something I learned. So that was kind of a big takeaway for me too. And, and I mentioned it before, that speed with the great dive is so, it's such a big deal. Um, it felt to me like a really big upgrade from the E to the F just because of the extra speed. And also in our, at least our historical games, when I first start getting into Fs, in a lot of instances, I'm now the fastest guy on the table, and I get to go first in a lot of my uh, a lot of my pairings. So that's only true in like you know when you have these historical matchups, uh, and it's probably short lived because I think you start getting into you know more advanced Spitfire Spitfire versions that still go faster than my 109 Fs. But you know there's a little sweet spot in there early on where I'm getting to go first. Yeah, and you know the it doesn't have you know the rapid roll or the tight turn, so you know those extra extra forty five degrees that you can use to change angles to get you out of trouble or get you in a shooting solution. Uh, it doesn't have the robust which can get you out of trouble if somebody gets behind you and you're 
starting to kind of nerf their firepower a little bit. So the the list building and the doctrine cards do become a little extra important, but when they're used right, it, it really is a formidable aircraft. You mentioned in an earlier episode how you prefer to play an aircraft that has a single trait. Now, all of these 109s have two traits. Could you explain again uh, what that means to you and how you prefer single trait, what you see as a disadvantage with um, a plane that has two traits? Yeah, again, just personally, uh, the two trait aircrafts for me, when you start to split the trait cards that you have in your hand, uh, it just changes the way you have to mentally progress through the turn. Uh, when you're playing something like a Spitfire that has a single tight turn trait, or I believe uh, like the Wildcast that has a single robust trait, it's kind of like that trait is always on for that airplane. So it does give you, you know, the two traits do give you a little more flexibility, uh, but it does come at the cost of potentially not having one of the traits available when you want it. You know, that's probably how I got onto the denial list because I, I think, at least when I think of it, great climb by itself is a denial trait, right? It, it keeps you from doing stuff sometimes. You want to climb and you got to roll for it to see if, if you're able to. So it doesn't, you know. What do, I, what do I say? I call it panther sex. It's like 40% of the time it works every time or something like that. It's, that's great climb in a nutshell. But what does great dive to you, do for you? Does great dive ever work as a denial? So I started thinking, since denial is powerful, how do I make great dive also become a denial so that at all times I've got something sort of working that way? That's, that's essentially how I stumbled onto that. And now we're kind of getting into list building now. Uh, this is outside of the the scope of like the historical doctrine charts. So if you're limiting yourself to a campaign where you're trying to be, you know, strict to the historical uh, matrix for uh, doctrine cards and theater cards, you wouldn't do this. But low altitude performance, so powerful, a great dive. So could, if you have it in front of you, could you tell us what low altitude performance does, Steve? Yeah, low altitude performance. Uh, on a disadvantaged friendly plane at the beginning of its activation, the plane becomes neutral. So at any time, if you have a disadvantaged plane, uh, automatically neutral. And again, it does pair with great dive. So you could burn that great dive card and use that again. So if you find yourself in a spot where you've been outmaneuvered a bunch, you know, you're hopping up to neutral, burning a great dive, bringing another plane up to neutral, burning a great dive. You can potentially use that card three or four times in one turn in a tournament. It's, it's kind of a denial thing, in my opinion, because those circumstances where you're getting pounded on because you're disadvantaged, now you play that and you're not, dis, you know, it's like you, you stole that easy win from your opponent. I don't know. Maybe I'm a little off on that, but I really found myself attracted to that when I was having that idea of, okay, so if great climb is sort of a denial card, how do I make great, I mean, if great climb is a denial card, how do I make great dive a denial card? That was kind of what stuck. And it, I played it with good effect at gathering of eagles. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. You actually, that card single-handedly forced the draw in your game with me at gathering of eagles. Cause there were four or five times uh, when the clock was ticking down that I had two or three guys to shoot at and they just kept popping up, kept popping up. And then you could, you know, bring them back up to neutral, burn advantage to dive, dive away. That was, that was a, a really, really formidable card. If you're not sticking to the historical doctrines. 
Yeah, you know, another card that worked really well for me, we just go right into list building here. Uh, for my denial list with the 109, besides low altitude performance, I had an ace and I used I know your type. Now, the main reason I used I know your type is because I figured there was probably going to be a lot of folks leaning on things like uh, tight turn, maybe single trait tight turn with a whole lot of planes, right? Like kind of low skill swarm list, if you want to call them that. This is what I know your type does. In reaction to an enemy plane within nine inches playing a trait card, that trait card has no effect. So it just turns it off, right? Now, I, I can't keep up with a single ace card that you only retain with a successful pilot test. I can't turn off every single skill level two aircraft that's on the table. But man, when you need it to work, it was there working. And what a good time. Did you get to be on the business end of any of that? Uh, I did. There were quite, there were a couple times in that same game where you turned off turned off my tight turn. So I, I was definitely a a recipient of the uh, denial blue falcon Brett list, no doubt. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna probably lean into that again for the next gathering of eagles. I'm just gonna try to perfect it anymore. <laughs> try to affect it some more. Now, one thing I didn't get to use that I really wanted to use was uh, the Malcolm Hood. Uh, that had some pretty strong things, but it's just down to the points. That's some of the trouble you get into when you get into Fs, especially Gs. I'm going to have even fewer points, so I'll have to be really, really careful about that. But I did get, I did feel really happy with my choice of having an ace with I know your type and then using the low altitude performance. I think if I had it all to do over again, I may try to rework that list maybe with uh, 109 Gs this time, which will be a little bit more expensive, but maybe I'll drop the skill level on one of my pilots, Not you know, maybe go with little uh lower skill level pilots with the exception of that that ace for that one card we'll see something to now think I, got, on. I gotta ask here is there any rule for a tournament that says your 500 point list has to only be on one squadron card could you run you know a three ship of 109 e's and a three ship of 109 f's and kind of save some points for malcolm hood we might have to check the tournament organizer for that one yeah that's a good point i mean i don't see why you could not it might have some limitations because it might be pretty easy to boom out a small ship squadron, but it's worth taking a look at. It's a good point. Uh, one of the things I didn't talk about yet when it comes to lists or some of these weather cards, I started to kind of get into them. We were talking about theater cards, but I thought it might be better to talk about the weather cards from the standpoint of uh, list building for a tournament or whatever. Uh, if I had to pick one, if I was able to use it with this denial list, Clear Skies is probably a top choice. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, Clear Skies lets you take a couple of clouds off the table. Now, if you think of a situation, perhaps at a tournament, where you're going to have uh, maybe a lot of low-skill uh, swarm lists or whatever, clouds are probably going to be pretty important to your opponent. And since in deployment, we're generally you know, placing two each or up to two each, uh, your opponent puts his two clouds down. You put no clouds down, then play clear skies and remove his two clouds. Now he's got no clouds to exploit. That's pretty powerful. In, in a way, to think of it, it's a, it's a cloud denial, and it's always on, right? Because once you remove the clouds, the clouds are off, and there's no more clouds. Uh, what do you think about that approach, Steve? Yeah, I think it could help, uh, help nullify, obviously, 
uh, a lot of those low skill pilots can always run into the clouds and kind of get that advantage back and hide in them. Uh, so certainly, uh, if you're going up against a swarm list with a lot of two skill pilots, I think removing the clouds could be uh, one strategy you could use to combat that. There's two more weather cards that kind of play into that, but the kind of the downfall of these other ideas is that they're not always on. Like removing clouds from the table entirely, that's that's an always on effect. These other ones are it's a these are discards, so. It could be situational. If you have the card, you're able to use it. It's only going to apply towards one plane, but when it works, man, it could be powerful. And that the first one is, is downdrafts. I've mentioned this before. If you're playing your games with clouds in just the sort of standard way with you know out any of these weather conventions for clouds, man, you're missing a lot of depth because clouds can dramatically change with the use of things like downdrafts, right? So downdrafts, if you enter a cloud, you better get out of the cloud next turn or you're going to crash aircraft removed. And when you do come out of the cloud, instead of coming out neutral, you come out disadvantaged. Now, that's played on, it's, it's a discard, so you play it against a plane. So, you know, you might have, I don't know, making up a number, you might have four enemy aircraft in clouds. You're going to play this card on a specific aircraft to make that effect happen. That's kind of the downfall. It's not always on. Uh, I remember when I first stumbled on downdrafts, I thought it was an always-on thing. Like, that's, like it completely changed the mechanic of how clouds work. It's not quite that powerful, but man, if it was, that would be huge. Can you imagine? Yeah, no kidding. That, uh, and again, downdrafts also comes into play in the campaign rule set where we have some different uh, random events and landing checks and whatnot where the weather's important for your guys actually making it back to base at the end so downdrafts is a certainly an interesting card to experiment with yeah yeah i think it's worth trying out in some of your games and i just i was kind of looking through the cards recently and overcast stuck out for me similar to downdrafts in that it's a discard you're playing it against a specific aircraft it's not like it's you know always on or you know but um in over in overcast, an enemy, if an enemy becomes advantaged and you play this card, the enemy aircraft must pass a maneuver test or he goes to neutral. How about that? That's pretty handy. Again, it's kind of one of those things, like kind of a, almost like a great climb card, if, like an extra great climb card. Yeah, it's kind of like, I guess, you know, kind of the add a cloud card, right? Yeah. So I thought it was worth mentioning for list building, you know, because it could be part of a, uh, could be part of a sort of a denial list build, if you will. Uh, now, I have some other ideas here. We talked a little bit about, you know, maybe the idea of throwing in Malcolm Hood if you've got the points or whatever. That's a good card. What do you think about this A skill, aggressive, in combination with great dive? I, I kind of had this idea that if you could outmaneuver and shoot in your pilot action, that that might go kind of nice with great dive. And, and this is how I'm imagining it. A lot of times when I'm flying my 109s, this might be true just about anything trying to have a group of planes relatively close together so that maybe the lead plane get, catches up to somebody and does the business of outmaneuvering them so that the subsequent aircraft and their pilot actions are the ones doing the shooting on the disadvantaged plane. But imagine if you've got an ace that's aggressive and he's hanging way back, or maybe he's maneuvered out of the furball and he's really kind of far away, but he's speed eight or heaven forbid speed nine, and he could dive really far and still maneuver and shoot. Like, let's say he starts advantaged, burns some advantage to dive, goes really far, right? With his plus nine to his dive or plus eight to the dive. Then in, from the position of neutral on a disadvantaged aircraft, 
he gets to outmaneuver and shoot. Maybe that per, maybe it's a neutral aircraft. He could not he could potentially outmaneuver a neutral aircraft, make him disadvantaged. Now it's your 109 is neutral shooting a disadvantaged aircraft all on one pilot action. That sounds pretty zoom and boom to me. What do you think? Yeah, I mean the other thing, if as you were talking about your list earlier, you pair that with a high altitude high altitude performance, you could theoretically take a you know, skill level three pilot, add the plus two to the maneuver attempt. Now you're out maneuvering pretty much any pilot on the board, you know, so and getting the shot at the end of it. So that that could pair quite well with a lot of the other cards we talked about for the 109. Yeah, that's something I have to take another look at because, you know, we're getting close to list building time for gathering of eagles. And these are all things I need to, you know, I'm kind of rubbing my hands together you know <laughs> i'm thinking oh boy i gotta i gotta revamp my list and these things might come into play it could be a lot of fun here so all right so we've spent nearly an hour just talking about the history and as i had hoped a bunch more time talking about you know how it plays in blood red skies let's talk a little bit about some of the expansion stuff um that maybe can help some of our uh some of our listeners enjoy so warlord games has some named aces that you can get that come with a 109 there uh, I don't know who would be surprised Eric Hartman is a named ace in the warlord games collection and he comes with a plus one agility you get killer instinct and tail snapper for 135 points and he comes with a bf 109g so one of their newer models that's pretty cool um, and then last but not least of the named aces specifically in a box with a 109 from Warlord Gaines is Adolf Galland. He's plus one agility, comes with six cents and snapshot for 135 points. He comes with a BF109E. I hear that that one is extraordinarily hard to find. Um, it may be out of production or something. I'm not sure. Uh, I found one on Amazon, but it was some time ago. I'm not sure if you can even find those on Amazon anymore. I would say if you like the 109 and you really want to get your hand on one of these aces man if you see one somewhere grab it right yeah absolutely uh and uh the adolf galan comes with a little ace figurine guy too that you could paint up i guess is made to kind of go with bolt action uh, but just makes a kind of cool figure i think the adolf galan one is that the one where he's shooting doing the shooting down his watch pose so pretty pretty neat figure yeah, I, I don't know where those figures come from. They don't come in the ace box because the ace box just comes with the card and the aircraft. But uh, there are uh, ace figures, like you said, they're like 28, I think they're like 28 millimeter figures for bolt action that are pretty cool on a little plinth. Uh, I've got one, uh, John uh, John Russell gave me the Adolf Galan one at the last Gathering of Eagles and I painted it up. I can't wait for him to see him. Was there nice gift from him it's i was really happy to get it he knows i love the the uh Luftwaffe stuff so he gave me that I, that may be similar to the um the ace box these figurines may be out of production or otherwise very hard to get i'm not sure so it was very generous of john to give that to me it's sitting right here on my desk proudly cool little guy um you know little note about these guys man eric hartman with that combination of killer instinct and tail snapper you do not want to get tailed by that plane because man, he will do work. Um, I'm not going to rattle off what those um, what those A skills do, but just to say, he's the guy that's going to be doing some business if he gets on somebody's tail. And Adolf Galan, he's going to rack up some booms for you because he's going to shoot everybody in deflection shots just like he's on their tail. 
and he's going to be real hard to tail and turn. You, if you get on his tail with his uh, sixth sense, it's not going to be easy for you to knock him down. So pretty exciting stuff. I, I love the combination of these A skills. Uh, last but not least, I wanted to share with our listeners uh, how they can get a hold of some Lead Pursuit podcast, unofficial aces that we've done up, and there may be some more to come. But if we're talking about the 109 specific ones, we have three that we've made so far. Uh, you can find these at leadpursuitpodcast.net. Click on the expansions and click on download the cards for aces. You'll see it. Uh, the first is Wolf Dietrich Ferstvika. He's plus one firepower. He's a master tactician, and he has set them up also at 135 points. These are cool cards we did ourselves. We did them in the same style as the Warlord Games ones. Check them out. I think you might like them. Uh, next is Herman Groff, plus one firepower. He comes with tough and cool under fire for 135 points. And last but not least, Joaquin Muchenberg, plus one firepower. He comes with aggressive and mother hen at 135 points. Check out the cards. There's a pretty cool write-up. These guys are all really interesting characters. These are all folks that... Um, saw action in uh, Malta, and uh, some of them went on to uh, Eastern Front as well. So uh, it's pretty pretty interesting characters. It was fun to make the cards, do the research and make those cards. And some folks who came to our last gathering of Eagles, I believe, went home with some of these cards. So, all right, uh, that's probably a wrap. We've been at it for just over an hour. I hope you guys enjoyed this Spotlight episode. I think there may be more of these to come intermittently, you know, in between episodes here and there. Uh, I think you'll probably get to hear from Steve and I, but I think there's lots of opportunity to get some folks who are probably more expert in uh, future aircraft or at the very least avid collectors for uh, whatever aircraft maybe we have in the spotlight. So more to follow on that. What do you think, Steve, for the first time out? Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. You know, uh, uh, I'm a big fan of history light, right? Just enough history to kind of give people the uh, the excuse to go really do a deep dive and find out stuff that interests them. So I think a little bit of history, a little bit of Blood Red Skies, how it plays on the table, uh, kind of tie them all together. I think, it, I think we could do a couple more of these. Yeah, maybe there's somebody out there that never really thought much of the BF-109. Maybe their opinions change a little bit. Uh, I don't know if they have a love affair with the 109 like I do at this point, but uh, hey, you know, maybe we've... Uh, increase the awareness out there and you know what if uh, if anything if we've given somebody some thoughts for their own list building or inspired somebody to go out there and maybe maybe they were on the fence about the 109 they're like you know what i want to go paint that thing now hey we've done our job right oh absolutely all right well that was fun thanks for being on steve and uh, thanks to all our listeners hey if you've got feedback for us please drop us a line at lead pursuit podcast.net or hit us up on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. If you have questions for the podcast team, things you'd like us to, uh, to cover on a future episode, or if you want to correct us on something we got wrong, hit us up, especially on Facebook. We would love to hear from you and we will incorporate that into our future episodes. Everybody have a great night. Thanks for coming on, Steve. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Have a good one.